Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's American Passages. I'm Dr. J. Today, I'll be reading from Alice McDermott's 2006 novel, After This. After This begins in the post-war years of the United States. For my younger listeners, post-war means after the Second World War, and continues through the upheavals of the 1960s. These upheavals include the war in Vietnam and the protests against it, and the radical collapse of social and sexual mores that came to be called the sexual revolution. For American Catholics, who both in After This and in her other novels are a central subject for McDermott, the upheavals also included the Second Vatican Council, which liberalized the Catholic Church, and Pope Paul VI's encyclical Humani Vitae, which unexpectedly banned birth control. These upheavals characterized the 60s after the undisturbed 50s. They were preceded, though, by a revolution in the 1950s, remembered today mostly by sociologists. The move by middle-class whites from America's cities to its newly created suburbs, a world of prosperity, but also of conformity and spiritual emptiness, out of which the 60s will come forth. After this opens with Mary and John Keene meeting for the first time at a lunch counter in Midtown Manhattan. John, who slightly favors his left leg, is back from the war. Mary, verging on spinsterhood at 30, has just come from a church where she has lit a candle, as she began doing each noon during the war, and is grabbing a quick lunch before getting back to her desk in one of the tall buildings. In ten pages, Mary and John are married, and in another five, they are at the beach not far from their Long Island home with their three children on a cold, blustery, post-Labor Day Sunday. They've skipped church just this once, but, as John observes, no one else has, and they have the beach to themselves. The three children do their best to play, the oldest, Jacob, with a shoebox of toy soldiers with which he hopes to recreate with his brother Michael the beachheads of the Second World War, Omaha or Okinawa. Michael, with a toy rifle, wandering off in search of enemies with whom to do combat. Annie, the youngest, with a single soldier her brothers have given her, and that she has named Steve Stevens. After this, we'll gradually transition to their stories, as well as that of a second daughter, Claire, now heavy and restless in Mary's belly. They will be stories of war and sex and drifting apart. For now, though, they are at play. When we join them, Michael, the more vigorous of the two boys, though the younger, has disappeared from sight. From After This by Alice McDermott Michael had slipped behind the crest of the dune. Jacob was lying flat now on his stomach, his little men all before him, and Annie had followed her single soldier up the dune to a grassy patch where the wind whipped her dark hair and the blowing sand made her squint, even as her lips kept moving. Now a conversation between her little army man 
and a headless creature formed by the two fingers of her right hand, but Michael was out of sight. Mary waited. Were it not for the ballast of her big belly, she would casually stand, stretch a bit, casually stretch her neck until she got a glimpse of him. Casually, because her husband said she worried too much, fretted too much, and would eventually infect the boys with her fearfulness, had perhaps already, in Jacob's case, infected them with her fearfulness. So she waited, trusting but feeling, too, the pins and needles prick of blown sand on her cheek and her forearm. Was the wind changing? Until, sure enough, there was the top of his head, the tip of his plastic machine gun, just over the next dune. She resisted calling to him, telling him to come closer. Her husband was asleep beside her. She could hear the way he pursed his lips with each breath. He deserved the rest, poor man. They were alone on the beach. They were perfectly safe. Michael's head crested the dune again. Then his shoulders, the rump of his blue jeans, the short barrel of his machine gun. He was crawling on his belly along the top of the dune, crushing the seagrass, filling his shirt and the pockets of his pants with sand. She would have to remember to shake him out before he got into the car. Down the path through the dune she could see the pale expanse of beach and then the place where it gave way to sky. She leaned forward a little, toward it, resting the bulk of the baby on the edge of her thighs. It was possible that the sky was darker out there to the east. It was possible that they would catch some part of the southern storm. She had an image of her unborn child, its head up under her heart, its ear pressed to the wall of her flesh, treading water with the flutter of its small legs, listening. It would hear the echo of the waves, the whistle of the wind, the rise and fall of its father's breath on his lips. Mary Keene was more than certain, she would have said, that this was her last pregnancy. These, the last weeks she would live with the toss and tumble of a child in her belly, with the unseen future a real presence inside her, the unseen future actual flesh and blood inside her, not as it was for the rest of the population and would be for her again once this child was born, merely imagination or hope or plan, the man Jacob would become, and Michael, the woman commiserating with her mother while the men were turned away, who would be Annie. What was moving under her hands, pressing and turning under the taut skin, was the future itself, already formed, pressing an ear to the wall of her flesh. With a cry, Michael leaped down the dune above his brother, charged, fell, rolled, collided with Jacob's back and Jacob's carefully arranged soldiers, kicking up sand. He leaped up again and with his machine gun drawn, mowed down sister, who was already crying, her fist to her eyes, brother, green army men, mother, father, and then whatever other advancing hordes came at him from the sea. John Keene was off the blanket in an instant, crying, Michael! Jacob was stretched out on the sand, his legs straight before him, crying plaintively, Michael! 
Annie was heading toward her mother, wailing, her fists, one of them still clutching Steve Stevens, to her eyes. There was sand across her nose and in her hair. John Keene took Michael by the arm and shook him. The boy looked up at his father as if he were an utter stranger materialized out of the salt air. Mary untied her scarf and, pulling her daughter's fist from her eyes, gently brushed it over her face. Jacob, resignedly perhaps, was lifting his flattened men, smoothing an area of sand to his left, setting them upright again. What's wrong with you, their father was saying. Why can't you behave? Michael, it was not fear on his face, only a kind of disbelief, as if this tall, red-faced, shouting man had materialized out of the wind, looked up to say, Just playing. I was just playing. But his father shook his arm with the litany of his transgressions. Hurt your brother. Hurt your sister. Ruined the day. He finally tossed aside the boy's arm as if it were something to be thrown away. Why don't you use your head, he asked. Why can't you behave? And felt the pain of his own anger in his chest, in his shoulder. He moved his hand to his neck, moved his shoulder. It was the arm he'd used to throw the football. He looked to his wife. Annie was now collapsed on the blanket beside her, pressed into her side because she could not sit on her lap. The bright scarf, now spotted with her tears, wrapped in her fingers. Mary Keene was fumbling in the pocket of her car coat for a tissue. She found one, held it to the girl's nose, leaned a little to say something into her ear. The girl nodded. Mary reached for the stuffed bear that still leaned against her hip, lifted it, and placed it in her daughter's arms. Deeper than the momentary terror of the father's anger, the poignancy of this scene derives from what we know will come, not for the individual characters, but for the America the characters represent. But what's to come isn't just something that we know either from history or for older readers, their experience of the 60s, what's to come is present in the scene, in Mary's, the mother's, protective anxiety, in Michael's fierce attack upsetting the day, in the father's sudden anger. The father is part of that cohort we've come to call the greatest generation, after the 1998 book of that name by television journalist Tom Brokaw, this is the generation that, after the Second World War, led the exodus to the suburbs, with their houses and yards and picket fences all in rows. When my older sister brought home from college Pete Seeger's 1963 recording of Little Boxes, which derided the conformity of the suburbs, I little understood, perhaps no one did, the far-reaching consequences of that derision that were soon to come. John Keene just wants to have a family outing to the beach, but the weather and the independence of his children won't let that happen. His anger passes, but the violence of it suggests something deeper that doesn't pass. He has come back from Europe, left the war behind him, quietly determined to make a life for his new family away from all that destruction and death. 
a house with a large bedroom for his two boys with space to set out their army men, another bedroom for what would be two girls, a new post-Vatican II church, round with Danish modern stained glass and a circus tent ceiling. Was it working? Would it last? Would his quiet will, the quiet will of his generation, keep the world at bay enough for a happy Sunday outing? John Keane has a vision of America that will fail. Alice McDermott also has a vision of America, one more knowing than that of the character she's created, dear both for its clarity and its poignancy, a clarity and poignancy both born of love. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.